From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. My guest today is Ron Block. Where do you even start with Ron Block? As a musician, he is an absolute legend. You know how many Grammys Taylor Swift has? She's got 10. John Legend? 10. How many Grammys does Ron Block have? 14. Fort freaking teen. You know how many Dove Awards for Best Album Packaging I have lost? Two. Now, Ron has won a lot of those awards, of course, from his tenure as banjo and guitar player for Allison Krauss and Union Station. Yes, I am laughing at my own stupid joke. He's also a member of the Soggy Bottom Boys, who were featured in the Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But for people who know Ron, you kind of forget pretty quickly that he's a legend, because he's, he's just such an amazing guy. He's a total student. He's read more books than a lot of us have ever seen. If you follow him online you'd know what a gift he has with the written word and the nuances he communicates about kindness and thoughtfulness. He's just overflowing with wisdom and there's a graciousness about him and our community is so much the better for it. Personally, I don't know how often we've started talking about guitars or recording gear, then all of a sudden we're talking about being fathers and husbands and from there it's a quick hop over to C.S. Lewis, the Apostle John, back to guitars and gear. It's all one conversation. Because these things are all a part of one well-lived life. Now this December, I had the immense pleasure to be out on the road with Ron for a whole month when he joined our Andrew Peterson Christmas tour. He's always played at our Nashville shows, but this was the first time he was able to hop on the bus with us and join us every night. On more than one occasion, Ron already had his guitar on and was in the dressing room playing music with somebody, anybody. Before I'd gotten out of bed, I would walk into a dressing room and he's just in a full-on bluegrass hoedown at like 9 in the morning. He is dedicated. You don't get that good if you don't love playing and work your butt off doing it. All that to say, it was so fun to sit down with Ron at a very short table in a twos and threes room of some church somewhere. I was able to kick this off with a memory that has long stuck with me of one of our first great conversations. He was at my old studio. I made this off-the-cuff remark. And his reply taught me more than many books I've read or sermons I've sat through. His faith in Jesus is practical and applicable in a way that shouldn't be so surprising, but is. And it was a big game changer for me. This chat was really just picking up where we'd left off in the bus the night before and would go on again side stage during intermission later that evening. Ron Block might be a legend in the Bluegrass Hall of Fame, well-deservedly so, but I'm so thankful that to me, he's a friend. So here is my conversation with Ron Block. So I used to have that little studio in Berry Hill. Uh-huh. And you were playing on somebody's record over there. Right. And I had this little window, probably at th- four feet tall. So I, you were playing guitar mm-hmm. or banjo. I don't remember. But you were playing something lightning fast like you do. Mm-hmm. But I remember making kind of an offhanded comment like, I can hear that you're tearing it up, but I look at you and I only I can only see sort of your shoulders up to your head and you just look just so relaxed and peaceful. <laughs> and um and you 
then immediately start talking about how that used to be a challenge for you. Yeah. And and then you start quoting a scripture of, well, if, if my, you know, God says my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and here I've been carrying all this stuff and I can't play. And, yeah. I, and I was struck by that, and I've thought about that so many times. Yeah, yeah. In, in a number of different applications in my life. I, I wondered if we could start there and like, what, do you remember even that, you don't have to remember that moment, but that line of thinking. Yeah, I because I, I think about this stuff a lot because, you know, really, honestly, I want results, you know, hmm. and I want results in my life as well as in my musical life. So if, if I'm working on something, I want to be able to learn it and do it. And so I, sometimes in my life, I felt like I'm fighting to get there. Hmm. And, and if I'm fighting to get there, it's usually because I'm not believing... I'm believing that it's hard to get there, hmm. right? Yeah. Like, so it's just like anything. Like, if we take the extreme and, and go, okay, let's say I'm going on stage and I believe deep down that I'm not a good musician and people don't like my playing, and, and but I'm going to try really hard. Well, I'm going to get out there and it's going to not be, it's not going to be good. Mm-hmm. Because the beliefs, the beliefs are foundational to the doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so if I believe a bad thing about myself, and in this case of speed you're talking about, yeah. playing fast, if I believe that it's hard for me to play fast and I have less dexterity than other people and all that kind of line of thinking, then what I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try harder. Hmm. And if I'm trying harder, usually what I'm doing is using more tension. Like I'm squeezing my pick harder and... And, yeah. you know, just pushing yeah, harder and playing up, harder. Yeah. And, and then what that does is it puts a lid on your ability. Hmm. And then you go, see, I guess I just don't have the dexterity. I've been in that cycle. And, you know, and we get in it, you know, uh, spiritually as well. We get in the same cycle. It's like the negative beliefs are reinforced because we're believing them. And then we do the stuff that's negative. Mm-hmm. And then we go, see, that's who I am. But what has to happen is a kind of a recoding that gives us the easy, you know, the light burden, the easy yoke. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so you know, even apart from the gospel, like, well, it can't really be separated from the gospel, but I mean, we're talking about music right now. To believe that I have everything I need for life and godliness would include dexterity, mm. right? So, and, and, and I feel and know that I'm supposed to play music. And if I'm, I've been put in that situation, then I have what I need in Christ. Yeah. Right. That, that's what struck me about that day was like, yeah, yeah. it was clear that you had, that was something you had wrestled with and you were, you had come to a, to a place, not that you had it perfectly, but you, you had something figured out that I did not have figured out. Right. Right. And, and you, it was clear that you had done some work. Yeah. And so I wonder what the work was of getting to that point. Because I, I wonder, A, did you get there musically and then spiritually, or did you get there spiritually? Spir- and then musically? Definitely spiritually first. Okay. So, what, so like, what, what, what was that process? Well, I guess I'd have to all go, go all the way back. Go all the way back. Okay. So I was raised Baptist. Okay. Right? And that, and where, were you, where, where were you I raised? I was raised in Southern California. Okay. Um, and some Northern California, but my mom, uh, started going to a Baptist church before I was even two and she, she went there, she found Jesus and, and then I was raised in the Baptist church and that uh, Baptist church was great. 
you know, for lots of things. But but I grew up with a heavy emphasis on I'm a sinner, mm. like really heavy, you know, kind of like I'm I'm a, I'm bad and I have to try to be good. That was the the impression that I got, and that may not have been what they taught, but like that's the impression I had when I was really, you know, quite young. So so that negative belief, you know, carried on into my teen years and into uh, early adulthood. Um, and then on a parallel track, on the musical track, when I started playing, I was about 11, got a guitar, and then I got a banjo at about 13, and I just went nuts for it. So what year, what what era was this? This, this was the 80s. 80s? So no, this so you, was the late 70s. So you're in the late 70s in yeah. Southern California. Yeah. How does a kid get into acoustic guitar and banjo? I, Nobody else is playing like... Yeah. You know, sh- is nobody, shredding. nobody that I knew like was was playing bluegrass. Um, I saw Lester Flat on TV uh, okay. on a an award show or something in in seventy six. He w- he's a, a, a half of Flat and Scruggs. So Earl oh, Scruggs was yeah. like is like the prototypical killer bluegrass banjo player from the earliest days. Of yeah, it. and uh, and that's but he wasn't with Lester at that time. Um, but I just saw Lester Flat with it with his bluegrass band, and it, I think it was about seventy six, mm. and then in seventy seven, Dad got me a banjo. So so, but when I started playing, I didn't have any concept of can I do this? Like you know, kids don't do that. Like yeah. usually, unless they've been trained, they can't do something. Mm. Usually, kids just they pick up a piece of paper and they start drawing. If their friends are drawing, they they just yeah. assume they can do the thing unless they've been told in some way. So as I as I was progressing and I was progressing very quickly, if 13, 14, 15, 16, and then um well-meaning adults in my family were concerned that I was going to play music for a living, you know, <laughs> because like gee, I wonder Which why. Is you know, often fair. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, you know, and their criticisms were fair, but what it ended up doing to me was it put some things down in my consciousness that weren't there before. Like, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I don't have what it takes. Maybe there's so many people that are better than me that I don't have a chance, right? Mm -hmm. So it put those little things in my consciousness, and I battled those with, you know, being a good Baptist boy. I believed the Bible, the inspired Word of God, and I believed, actually literally believed Matthew 6. Consider the sparrows, consider the lilies, you know, God takes care of them. God clothes them. Mm-hmm. Is He not also going to take care of you? So I, that was my answer to the argument. God's going to take care of me because I felt really strongly that I, if I didn't play music, I would be miserable for the rest of my life. I really felt that way. Mm. And um, but those little bits in my consciousness came to fruition later. Mm. You know, in pressure situ- situations. Um, because those little lies we believe, that's in, they, they may just sit there for a long time, but when it comes down to a pressure situation, they're going to kind yeah. of cause so some problems. So what were those lies? Oh, you? maybe I'm not good enough, and um, uh, maybe I don't have what it takes. Maybe other people have more talent. You know, um, what are the odds of me succeeding? You know, all that kind of stuff. Hmm. It, and, and it was, you know, it was well meant. Like, I don't hold anything against anybody, any authority figures in my family. Like most people, most people don't grow up to win a bunch of Grammys and sell yeah. records, <laughs> right. right? So it is a little ridiculous. I do find it funny 
though, that that all happened because I was a kid going, I'm going to trust God and he's going to take care of my needs. Now, not that that's going to happen in everyone's life, that it may take, my life could have taken a different turn. And, you know, the Lord could have said, you know, I, you want to play music and that's good and you can, and this is where I've called you, but you're also going to teach music. You know, he could have done mm-hmm. that, you know, um, but, but he, he let me play music. So yeah. anyway, so I got in Allison's band through a process of, you know, when you play bluegrass, you, you go to bluegrass festivals. So I started when I was That's about 16. That's kind of the scene, right? Yeah, it's the yeah. scene. And so I would go to festivals and I joined my first band. Like, I think it was the first festival I went to. Hmm. This older couple asked me to join their band. So I was in their band for four years. And then I met other people, other musicians through that band. And then later formed a regional band. Okay. Where we traveled up and down the Northwest, all the way up into way up into Canada, and even the Yukon. Hmm. You know, oh, we cool. and then uh, and then we went out to Nashville to um, play in a contest out there, and Allison Kraus was there, so I met her there. She was fifteen, and then I met the rest of the guys who would be in the band later. They would be in Allison's band. Yeah. I met them at Branson. So you, there's this whole networking so, thing so that you, happens just because yeah. you jam. You're not trying to, or at least I wasn't trying to find the important people. I was just going, you guys are killer. Can we go play? Yeah. Let's go play somewhere in a hotel room. You know. So that's what we did. So, um, so anyway, over time, I, you know, I became. I was the. I was the guy they called when they needed a banjo and guitar player and singer. Yeah. So. So they called me and I joined. It was incredible, you know. Like, so did you? Did you join before kind of they blew up? N- well, she or was already. Was kind of they already were already rise? like on this upward track in bluegrass. She mm-hmm. hadn't yet crossed into country and like all this other stuff that yeah. she's done. That was later. Um, but um, she had already made her first solo record, "Too Late to Cry." And then Two Highways with another version of the band. And then I've Got That Old Feeling was her third record, a solo record. And then we did, when I joined, we did a record called Every Time You Say Goodbye. Oh, which was like the big record. Yeah, and that, that was... One the, of the, the first of the big records. Yeah, and that was the, kind of that record, because we were such perfectionists, that record was the kind of the beginning of the end of my old way of thinking. Because, really? Yeah, because, just because, you know, um, when you're in the studio, and it's like, do it again, do it again, one more time, do it again. And, and, I, and I was doing it to myself and everybody else. Like, I was as perfectionistic. Hmm. Or more probably than anybody, and that's not a good thing. That's yeah. like that that'll kill the music if you're not careful. Mm. Um, anyway, that's like it caused me, you know, to feel that I wasn't good enough. See, there's that lie popping up in your consciousness, going, "See, you're not good enough." So then I would feel bad because I it took me, you know, whatever amount of time to get the guitar solo or get the vocal part or whatever, because we were going for such a high standard. Yeah. Um, and, but it began to eat at me, you know, the, those mm. lies down there started to eat at me. So I kind of, uh, in the mid nineties, I kind of had this, so not a, I wouldn't call it a breakdown. I didn't go to a mental hospital or anything, but like internally I was just done. Mm. Like, um, and I remember saying to, to God, you know, if you're, if you're just going to forgive me when I have resentment or bitterness or anger or sadness or lust or any of that stuff, if you're just going to forgive me every time and you're not going to change my life, forget it. I don't, I don't want it. Hmm. I don't, I don't want to do this. I, you have to, I need life change. 
and and it wasn't long after that or during that time I was began finding stuff in the word that was different from or that jumped out at me from the from the yeah. from the Bible from the passages in the Bible and it was the positive stuff there's so much beautiful positive stuff about who we are in Christ and that we're righteous in Christ and actually righteous cuz his life is in us so all, all of a sudden I began seeing all these amazing things that I have power, that I have life living inside me in Christ, and, and I can trust that life to change the stuff that I want to change in, mm-hmm. right? So, so, you know, I feel like the 90s, were that was where God really met me and, and began to revamp not the musical side of me, but the personal stuff that was more important. He started there with all the personal stuff. To answer your original question, yeah. he started with all that like inner that stuff inside me that that um, came from growing up, you know, broken broken family, you know, marriage, divorce, you know, all this kind of stuff in my family line, and um, and some relatives who were who were always in some serious trouble mm. <laughs> with the law and stuff. You know, yeah. there was a lot going on back in those days that that is put into your consciousness when you're young yeah so so that's all the personal side of it the musical side began to be dealt with i still played through the 90s i was in i was in union station for goodness sake yeah you guys were and in, i still oh, brother where are they? yeah and i still practiced and i still you know my wife will tell me if i go oh i wish i'd have practiced more than in the 90s and she goes honey <laughs> You practiced. Give me, give me a break. You know, like so. I was still working at it and all that stuff, uh-huh. but um, just a little bit of the. Well, it wasn't even the newness, or it, it, I just became. I more more than anything, I became enamored with God mm. and with and with the truth of who I am in Christ and all that stuff. I just became completely eaten up with it, and I studied and studied and read and prayed and you know did all that stuff. And music, music did become secondary, became really secondary. Um, and lots of times I spent more time studying and reading than I did practicing, hmm. which, you know, probably was healthy. You know, I needed, yeah. I needed that kind of like um, balance, you know, yeah. flip it over to the balance. Anyway, and then later, probably late 90s and then on through the 2000s, I started you know, trying to apply this stuff to music, Hmm. you know, and recognize, beginning to recognize that these kind of false beliefs that we hold, that I was holding about my musical ability deep down, you know, where I didn't even see them, those things were holding me back. And that, I mean, that's immediately transferable outside of music. I mean, to any... Into anything. Any career or relationship. I mean... I mean, it's sports psychology. Yeah. Hmm. It's the same as sports psychology and like, you know, even, even if you take what I'm saying and separate it from, you know, Christ and, and, and God's revelation and who God is, even if you separate it and just take it psychologically, it works in sports, you know, like, because in order to win an Olympic gold medal, you have to first believe you can. Mm. And you have to really believe you can if you're gonna if you're gonna persevere all those years working at that thing because you know you have a great you have to know it like really know it and believe it and then you'll then you'll persevere through all the work because otherwise mm-hmm. you wouldn't 
So everything starts with faith and a positive attitude about your abilities. Yeah. And that, I mean, so when you, let's retranslate that back into the Christian life. Everything starts like sanctification starts with believing that you have a power inside you that isn't you, but it is it is connected to you and it is really you. D- deep down at the source of you, there's a God there that is the God of you know, that's the Lord Jesus. You know, yeah. and there's he he's the he's the vine and we're the branches. So the, all that power flows up from that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's so there's huge huge amount of power there, and then that power can be applied to anything. Yeah, you know, it's like I can I can go, I can go on stage, going, "This is going to be amazing. It's going to be beautiful." You know, and of course, it doesn't mean you don't practice. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you go, oh, "I'm just so full of, you know, God's, you know, whatever He gave me that I can just." do it spontaneously. Well, no, no, you still have to work at stuff. You still have to build your technique, just like with songwriting. Yeah. You have to have songwriting technique. You have to have guitar technique and vocal technique. Yeah. You have to do that stuff. But the doing of it is a joy when you believe you can. Mm. I mean, it makes me like when I am in the right frame of mind, I pop out of bed in the morning to go practice. You know, I spend time with God first and all that. Yeah. But like I pop out of bed going, this is going to be great. I'm going to learn that solo by so-and-so and I'm going to, you know, I'm full of, I'm full of life like I was when I was 14 hmm. when I'm like that. Otherwise, you know, it's just a, it's a little more dreary. Well, what's one of the ma- most amazing things about watching you and, and knowing you over the years is that you're one of the most decorated, celebrated bluegrass musicians alive. Mm-hmm. And maybe you, well, you don't get to say that, but I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you practice six or seven hours a day. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of musicians and I know very, very few musicians who practice, yeah. you know, they, they're working, they play the gig, they do the sound check. Yeah. They write the songs, but that, that just whittle and woodshed yeah. and continue to try to get better at their instrument. Yeah. On their own, like you're, I, I honestly think you might be the only person I know. Well, like if you look, Sierra is a great example. That mandolin is almost always in her hands. That's true. Yeah, like she's we're, she's done the show. She's sitting there noodling around, playing stuff, and mm-hmm. learning. A, she was learning a Django solo, <laughs> you know, like yesterday. And um, so there, there are musicians like that. That it's like I mean, because, maybe that's it, more of a bluegrass thing. Yeah, I think also... I think in bluegrass, there's a lot of that because it's it's highly sometimes highly technical, like, you know, you have to have technique in order to go, yeah, to pull that off, you have to have a certain amount of technique. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's go back to your story a little bit. So you, you're growing up in Southern California, you're in a family that's, that's, what would you say? Tricky. There's some tricky situations in your family. Yeah. 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 It was tricky. It was a little tricky to navigate like emotionally as a kid. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't know why your parents divorced and nobody ever talks about it and nobody ever explains it. And you know, so you just kind of go, you're left with things. Uh, I read a book a, while, uh, a long time ago. In the, actually, it was in the 90s where I was trying to find answers for myself, you know. Mm. And it was uh, Judith Wallerstein. And she did this 25-year study of children of divorce. Yeah. And it started in the... 
Yeah, it started in the late 60s, and then she talks about the no-fault no divorce laws coming along where people could easily get a divorce. Yeah. And then the, and then she started seeing more and more, you know, patients because of that. You know, parents bringing their kids in, we're getting divorced, and he's having trouble in school, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. So she tracked these kids all the way through um, 25 years of their lives. And she found some really common factors, mm. feeling feeling like you're different from other people, feelings of alienation, you know, depression, and like all these kinds of things that come from, you know, mm. the having the solidity of your world yeah. fall apart when you're young. Mm. So yeah, so that, so that's some of that stuff was in me. Yeah, you know? and then add to that, you're a bluegrass player, in the height of like the heavy metal <laughs> totally yeah it was, it was a scorpions and foreigner and and <laughs> michael shanker and you know every you know so and then so at what point do you kind of move out to nashville or i guess at one point do you decide like this is what i'm going to do i knew that when i was like 15 okay so there was never i was any... just like once i got into it and I, I was spending hours and hours a day every spare second if i wasn't working at my dad's music store or going to school mm -hmm. i was playing like nobody ever saw me because I was in my room learning stuff. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was just fascinating and mm. it still is, you know. But, um, but yeah, I did it constantly. Yeah. And then when did you move to Nashville? That was years later. So I got in my first band. Okay. And I was about 16. Played with them till I was 20, 20-ish, 21. Mm -hmm. um, quit that band. Quit my dad's store. Moved to Texas and went to a place called South Plains College where they had a bluegrass program. And it wasn't super developed at that time. Um, so I basically was self-learning, and then I took some lessons from various guys there, you know, wow. and went to music theory class some. And, but I went two semesters, and yeah. it was just a good way to make a break with the life I was living, working mm -hmm. at Dad's store, playing in that band. And then I came back to California after that, um, started playing in a band, bluegrass band called Weary Hearts, and we and that it's was a the, great name for a bluegrass. And that band. was the and that was the uh, that came from a Stanley Brothers song, "This Weary Heart You Stole Away." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we and we traveled all. You know, this this was the regional band where okay. I traveled up and down the West. You know, mm -hmm. and um, and then started meeting meeting Allison and the and Barry Bales. Tim Stafford, you know, uh, Adam Steffi, all those guys. Uh, and then got eventually, oh, I, I got married in the interim. Like So uh, in 88, I got married. Mm -hmm. And then in 89, we were still, we were still in California. And then, and then I just knew I was supposed to move to Nashville. Hmm. Like there's very few things in my life that I've known that I'm supposed to do. Like playing music was one. I, and it goes hand in hand with wanting it as well. Sure. I want to do it, and I know that like this is like a critical thing. Mm -hmm. And getting married was the other one, and then moving to Nashville was the the third one, hmm. and then joining Allison's band was a no brainer. Like that was. And so those all kind of happened in rapid succession. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. I just had these big pieces fall in place like that. Yeah. And so that that and so we moved to Nashville in 1990. Um. And then I played with a band called the Lynn Morris Band for about six months, but they lived way up in Virginia, so I had to drive there Ooh. every time to to rehearse and then get in the van and drive 10 hours to a gig or whatever. You oh, know, man. it's like it was a lot of driving. Yeah. So I quit that after about six months 
And then a f- several months later, Allison called me and said, "Do you want you know? Do you want, are you ready to join our band? Yeah. Do you want to join our band?" So you've been in that band how long now? Since ninety one. So 28, twenty eight years. Over half 20. my life. That's wild. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't want to get super into it, but you've. I mean, you guys have done some amazing things. I, I'm. Would you tell me just one or two fun stories of of being a part of a band that that's had that kind of success and. I mean, you guys were you were in Oh Brother Where Art Thou, right? Yeah, yeah. Were we you were, in the movie? We're actually in the movie. Yeah, yeah. There's the scene, the Homer Stokes scene, where he gets ridden out on a rail. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're the band back there. That's right. Okay, yes, that's the right. Union Station. It's um, it's yeah, me, Jerry, Dan, Barry. So everybody but Allison. Yeah, Allison and Allison's in uh, the. She's in the some other scene. Yeah, the, but she's down in the river. To the river with, uh, down to yeah, the oh river gosh. scene. What a great movie. <laughs> I mean, what's it like to be on a Coen Brothers set? You know, it was what it a was, trip. Well, it was cool, but you know, it was like, it was our our scene was filmed at a Mississippi schoolhouse, and mm. so I was in a schoolroom, much like the one we're in right now, except there was no carpet, and there were like three chairs in there that were hard plastic chairs, and that was it. So we, that was you know, I just sat in there most of the time because they didn't need us for most of it. Because they were doing all the other scenes. So three days, I read three books. <laughs> uh, isn't, that, isn't that so often the way it is? Like yeah. The, it's the, a, the coolest looking things are like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it, so it was bored. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I was. But, you know, I, maybe I played guitar a whole bunch, you know, played some banjo, uh, read books. And then I would also go out and watch them do their scenes. You just had to be super quiet. Yeah. You could watch. So I was watching George Clooney and those guys do their do their stuff. So it was interesting, you know, really a great experience. Yeah. How how has being in a band like that changed from when you started to what it is now? Uh you know, there's an arc, you know, you have a career a band has a career arc. Like you have the the point where you're kind of moving forward, good things are happening and and it's great and things are feeling good. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And then you kind of break through and you're like, you're playing bigger festivals and, you know, you're making a little more and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And, and then there's, we just have had a lot of breakthroughs where it's like, yeah. wow, how can this get any better? You know? And then, and, but then, there, but there's an arc. And, and so in the, in the last few years, it's been, we've just like, we haven't played as ACUS since 2015. Really? Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure why, but it just you know hasn't happened, and um, and we haven't done a record since Paper Airplane, which was like 2011. So, but now Allison has done Windy City, which is a country mm-hmm. sort of like it's not modern country at all. It's it's like more like the old style, the really beautiful country stuff. Yeah. And she did an incredible job on it. It's a great record. Um, and so we've toured that record for the last three years. As with, uh, and it's with Barry Bales is in that. So it's not, it's not Union Station. Station. Yeah. So it's just Alison Krause, an evening with Alison Krause. And it's uh, Barry Bales on bass, Matt Rawlings on piano, James Mitchell on guitar, great electric guitar player. Um, And I play acoustic guitar mostly and classical and then a little bit of banjo. Uh, Sidney Cox sings and plays dobro. Jeff White from Vince Gill's band is, is, playing and singing and Jay Belleros hmm. who was on the Raising Sand record. Yeah. Is oh in, the, and they're all just it's just they're stellar musicians. Every one of those guys 
They're so good that it, it calls me up to a higher level. You know, it's like when you play with people that are, you know, at a high level. It makes you go, mm-hmm. I need to learn some of that jazz stuff. I need to learn some, yeah, of, yeah. some of those rhythms that Jay's doing. You know, you're, you're always, you know, thinking about that. So, yeah. so it's, been, it's been great. For me, more than any of the, like, success and all that stuff, it's, it's just the, it's the music. Hmm. Like, you know, it's the, the success stuff is good because you can make a living at it. Yeah. And it's great. I it allows it. you to keep doing it. It allows you to keep doing it. And and it's it's because I love practicing and working at it and playing shows and making records. I love doing all that stuff. So it, the for for me the thing is, did I make good music? Hmm. You know, it's always the it's always you know, if I played badly and didn't you know, didn't have a good show, it doesn't matter how big the show was or or whether yeah. you know whether it was a massive, whether Bonnie Raitt was there, <laughs> you know what I mean. If I played badly, I played badly. Yeah, you know. Wait, now you're also. Uh, I've seen your bookshelf. You've got a lot of. You're like a. You're kind of an avid book collector. Yeah, I've gotten to be that way. Yeah, it's what, just a weird what's anomaly of my. And some of my favorite kinds of books too. Yeah. All those old George McDonalds and. How'd you get into that stuff? Uh, you know what? Yeah, there's a there's a Dobra player, really great Dobra player that I've been friends with since the Weary Hearts. He played with us some. His name's Rob Ikes, and um, he's sort of like, well, he's one of the big Dobra players in bluegrass. Uh, he gave me years ago for my birthday. He and his wife gave me a copy of Pilgrim's Progress, and it was just a beautiful old copy. Hmm. Now I had always liked old books, but I just never had thought of collecting them. And so that copy, I loved it, and it, you know, it, I think it just kind of seeded my imagination to mm. buy old books, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I remember in the nine, I think he gave that to me in the early nineties, and I remember in the early nineties going to a bookshop in London, and the Chronicles of Narnia first edition UK set. Oh wow! It was six hundred pounds, so that would have been at the time about twelve hundred dollars. In that year, so it was probably in our money, it would might be twenty six hundred dollars mm-hmm. or twenty eight. I'm guessing, but like yeah. with inflation, yeah. it'd probably be double that. So it was some, it was some dough, some dough, but nothing compared to what they're worth now. Yeah, right. Did you get them? No, because I didn't have the mindset. Is I didn't have the vintage or collector mindset. Yeah, and that mindset says this may be a little expensive now, but it's going to be worth a lot later and then mm-hmm. you can enjoy it all those years and then sell it yeah right so we that's talking kind of, about guitars just the other night about yeah that same idea yeah yeah it's kind of the collector mindset where where you go you know i'm putting money into this thing and i still have the money and it's going to accrue value mm-hmm. and usually you can write it off if you're a musician you can write off like if i buy a guitar i can write off the guitar yeah you know yeah so now you just did uh, a new solo record uh-huh. that's acoustic guitar, yeah. instrumental. Yeah. What led to that? Uh, Allison, we were on Windy City Tour in 2018, and we were, I forget what we were doing. I, she was talking to some people she knew on the phone or something, and we were playing and singing for them. And But I think, I can't remember the exact circumstance, but she said, to me later, she goes, why don't you make an album of, you know, that peaceful, that kind of, you know, when you're just playing mm-hmm. and making it up as you go along, mm-hmm. just that really peaceful feeling that comes from that. Why don't you do an album of that? You know, and I thought, yeah. I thought about it and that, so that, that's when I did it was after that tour. Mm. 
2018. So I started recording like November or something like that. No, uh, so I did some in November, some in December. Yeah. And I think I added one one tune or two tunes in January. So it's 14, you know, little pieces that are, you know, tunes. Yeah. And they some of them sound a little bit like old hymns. And then sometimes a little melody from some other tune sneaks in for <laughs> two measures, you know. And I just let it be what it was because the, the premise was I would get with God. You know, so I would sit there, I would read, I would be peaceful. And then I would... Um, you know, it's been half an hour, hour, whatever it took to to where I was like, you know, things are good. Life is mm. good. God is good. You know, where I had that kind of peaceful feeling. And then I would pick up my guitar and I'd warm up a little from that feeling of sufficiency and peace. And then I would play from that. And then I would turn on Pro Tools after I warmed up. Mm-hmm. And then I might get like a ballad book or a book of poetry and just read through stuff and feel inspired. You mm-hmm. know? And then the other thing was I, lots of times I watched the sunrise. You know, I'd see the sun coming through the windows in the mm-hmm. library, you know. So are you a morning person? I, when I'm at home, I am, definitely. I like getting up early because I, I love getting a jump on the day. Mm-hmm. So, so I would play, and then over the course of several hours, I would have this melody and have it recorded, and then I would maybe add another guitar or add, you know, ebo, mm-hmm. you know, like something to have a sustainy sound, and then I had added vocals later. So, some really good vocalists on mm-hmm. it. So, that's good because you you spent a lot of time kind of supporting some other singers, some other, you know, like somebody like Allison, or yeah, which puts you in the position of kind of needing to. It it can put you in the position of. I get to work when they're working. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be tricky when they decide they're not in a position to work, a season right. to work, or they're going to do a solo record. They're going to do something doesn't else. In, in, involve. Yeah. So, so what has been your relationship with that kind of, uh, that kind of work? Make sure we don't have to go to soundcheck. Oh, do we? Uh, no, we got, we're bumping soundcheck. Oh, good. Keep we're going. Good. Yeah. So what, what has been your relationship with work when you're not, always in control of when you get to work. Yeah, that in that way. Yeah, if you know, if I could go back all those years. Mm-hmm. You know, early on before you I bought those books, those yeah, CS Lewis books. Yeah, that's right, way back. I would have bought those, yeah. <laughs> um, if I could go back before I joined Allison, I was recording stuff on my own all the time. Hmm. You know, I was that's what I did. I sat, I experimented, you know, I play, you know, recorded on 4-track, 8-track whatever whatever I had going, I had an 8-track reel-to-reel. And I was always recording stuff and making stuff. Mm-hmm. And when I joined Union Station, it's like I stopped a lot of that. Because I was I, I would just think, well, you know, I'm doing this now, and, mm-hmm. and I'm throwing in all the way. And, and I began to, like, pr- put my practice toward being in the band. So I would practice mm-hmm. stuff that would benefit my soloing or my backup or my timing or the things that would benefit the band. And it was the same with uh, writing songs. It was the same with, um, you know, every aspect of playing. It was it was all, like, bent toward the band. And that's mm-hmm. a good thing. Uh, you know, I'm glad for that. But I do wish, if I could go back, I would just continue my own track as well. So I would do both. I would do both things all the way through. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if, if I'd have done that, it could have been possible more possible for me to do a lot more now. But I just wasn't thinking that way. I was just throwing in. Like, I do yeah. things wholeheartedly when I 
decide to do them, I do them wholeheartedly. Yeah. And, uh, and that's just what I did. So I can't change that. But what I, what I have done, it took me a while when we had a hiatus for like three years, two and a half years or something in 2007 to 2010, hmm. had a kind of a hiatus there. And, um, and I was, didn't know what to do really. So what did you end up doing? Um, well, you know, we just got by. <laughs> you know, we just managed to we managed to get by. I mean, again, I returned to Matthew six. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I'm trying to figure out how to say this. You know, I had a couple of years where I was I felt like I was a chicken scratching in the dirt for mm. money. And I decided not to do that anymore. And um once I decided not to do that, then things picked up again. So so, but ache is played anyway. Well, how do you, 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 just to make a decision is one thing, but what do you, what do you change about your life to not be that way? Well, what I do, what I do, ended up doing, like in the, in that, in that long period, 2007, part of 2007 and 2008, 2009, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. So we were just basically going on what we had. Yeah. And then, then we made paper airplane. And mm -hmm. then there was all this kind of positive uh, energy with that, with the band and with everybody. So I mentally, I just went through the switch back to, okay, we're back to this now. Mm -hmm. But then 2015, it was short touring, and then we just didn't do anything. Yeah. 20, the rest of 2015 or 2016. So I started just going, got to do something, got to do something. And so, um, and I did some good things in, in that time frame. Um, but I, I, I still, I ended up feeling like I was doing, I was, I had a fear motivator, mm. you yeah. know, I have to do something. I have to do something. Well, that's not a good motivator. You'll make bad decisions with that motivator. Mm. And so I went back to, I'm going to trust you, Lord, you're going to take care of this stuff. And, um, I'm going to work on my skills. So, so it's like, it's, that's always my way is I go, I'm going to work on my skills mm -hmm. and that may include like, I got to get better at using my website and putting stuff on sale and sure. like, it may involve going, I need to learn how to make videos and iMovie for this. It's not this. just the skills of playing. It's not just the skills guitar, of playing. So, yeah. so, but, but that's what, that's what I do is I go, I need to work on my skills for this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And, but, and the, but the Lord sends the opportunities and that's, then that's what ended up happening. So, mm. so, you know, like, uh, my, I have a band with this guy Damien O'Kane over in the UK, and in in 2011 we played over there, and they asked me to play on. His wife is Kate Rusby, who's a great English oh, folk well, singer. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and so they asked me to play on Kate's record, uh, and so I did in 2012, and then I toured with them in 2012. So that started a friendship between me and Damien. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, he's like I call him my Irish counterpart because we both grew up playing banjo and guitar, you know, kind of. Mm. And, um, so that relationship kind of began to come to fruition and we started talking about doing banjo music together. Yeah. So Irish tenor banjo, which is four string banjo played with a flat pick. And hmm. then I would play bluegrass banjo with finger picks oh, and, that's cool. and we wouldn't, I wouldn't try to be an Irish guy. I would just, you know, I would lean toward his stuff and learn it, and he would mm -hmm. lean toward mine and learn it. But we're still ourselves, so it really kind of works. So that this, all this kind of stuff is, and those, and those are all instrumental records too. Right? Yeah, yeah. And this, 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 all this kind of stuff has come around. And then Allison started touring with the country band and asked me to be a part of it. You know, so all that happened. 
re- all that really began happening after I just said, you know what, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm not going to mm-hmm. try to make all this happen. And I think sometimes God waits for us to rest in him. Like I think sometimes when, when we're rushing around going, I got to fix this. What's going to happen? Oh, oh, yeah. And we're in that anxious mode where we're going to make bad decisions and get ourselves locked into a job or into some situation yeah. that he didn't really intend for us to do. But because of our anxiety and fear, we grasp, grasp that like a dying man at the lifesaver. Yeah. Well, Sometimes I think he stands back and just waits, and he goes, well, if if you want to do that, you'll learn from it, but it won't be pleasant, you know? So and so when I, when I did finally did rest, I feel like he went, okay, that's what I want you to do. You yeah. trust me, because that's, you know, because basically the lesson is that's what you did in the beginning. You were a kid, and because you had nothing to lose, you trusted me for Matthew 6, and then you worked on your skills. Man, my and, my story is the exact same. Is it? After when I lost my my job a few years ago, uh-huh. it was about four or five, six months of just that frantic, totally panic. I got to do something because you have a family. Yeah, you know, and I mean, well founded panic. Yeah, yeah, sure. From <laughs> a worldly just, perspective, it's degree, totally yeah. well founded. And then it felt like I heard, and I don't hear the Lord a lot. Mm-hmm. It was like you need to write songs, and I was like, out loud. That's dumb. <laughs> I've said that to him. I've said that to the Lord too, lots of times. Like, I need a job. <laughs> I need money. I don't need right. mu- yeah, songs. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah. And then a friend, I kind of tell one friend that. And he's like, well, you know, you you make records out of those songs, and then you sell them, and you play shows, and that's yeah. you've made most of your money. Yeah. Like, oh, he's like, that's kind of been your job. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. That's right. So start writing songs. <laughs> Guess what? But those, those again, it gets stayed on, you know. Build your skills. Yeah. Go back to trusting God and do what you're called to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's that's where I ended up. So now you've got two kids who are college age, right? Yeah. Yeah. Twenty one. My son's twenty one. Our yeah. son's twenty one, and um, and daughter is nineteen. And uh, so yeah. when you're walking through those different stages of huge success, and then two and a half years of downtime <laughs> and all of that in between, like what are you communicating to them in the moment? What do you, what do you think? Um, how have you parented through all those different seasons? Uh, sometimes badly, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like, the thing is, I think, I, you know, I think our, I think I have a pretty good relationship with both our, both our kids. Sure. Um, and they, they both talk to us. And tell us stuff, you know. They they they're pretty open about themselves, and so that's good. Um, I think, I think at times I communicated fear, and um, you know, and fear of lack, and I think I communicated some of that stuff. But but all through it, like I'm very quick to point out when I'm not trusting God. I was always really quick with that with them. You know, I would say, mm-hmm. guys, remember today when you were misbehaving and. And I got mad and got kind of loud. And they'd go, yeah. They they were like five and seven, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I say, well, you know, I forgot to trust that that God is here and that he's in me and he's in you and that he can handle that. And so mm-hmm. I thought I had to, like, stop you guys from fighting and and use my anger to do it. And it was, it was wrong for me to do that because I wasn't trusting God. Hmm. And I and I'd say, is, do you think Jesus is that way? Does he is he like that? And they'd shake their heads, 
Mm. I go, yeah, and so I'm really sorry. And you just, you know, I would just tell them that stuff. And so I think they're used to that now. They're used to a dad that just goes, eh, I acted like an idiot, and I'm sorry I wasn't trusting God. You know? Yeah. And when you when you do that, it it does, it doesn't, I mean, it, I'm sure they'll have, <laughs> hopefully they won't end up on the psychiatrist's couch trying to, you know, piece together their life. But it does give them a framework to go, it's not always my fault. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, if you grow up with parents that never confess and they're always right and then the, ch- the child kind of just internalizes all that. Hmm. Whereas I don't, I don't think our kids have internalized all that, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I'm talking about it as if I did that all the time. It's not like if you look at the general way of parenting that we've done, like, you know, it's probably 99% beautiful times and these episodes of, you know, <laughs> that's a pretty amazing well, batting average. I, that's I just threw that out there, yeah. but you know, it could be like ninety percent. But I, but I don't feel like yes. I don't feel like they had, you know, every day there was anger and frustration, and you know, there wasn't that. But mm-hmm. but it does, you know, the work work affects a, a man, especially like that is that is the like in my. I only say that because I was the one outside of the home working and my wife was stay-at-home mom the women too like work affects us yeah and then we it's if you're not careful you can bring that home like the frustration the feeling of oh i need to yeah you know you can bring that home and kind of mess with them. but the one one of the great things about playing with alice in all those years is we had ethan in 1998 and then she had her son in 99 and then we had erica in 2000 and so our kids were similar ages. So once Sam got to school age, once her son got to school age, um, th- we toured like late May or June mm-hmm. to September. Mm. And he went with us. Yeah. So, so, so I was home most of the school year mm. with our kids. You know, we would just tour in the summers. So, so they grew up with a dad who was at home a lot. Hmm. So that was good. That's cool. Yeah. That's really a unique opportunity. Yeah. So I was home a lot. Of course, I was downstairs practicing and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I did all my stuff. But popping, Dad's here. Yeah, Dad's here and he's downstairs and I can hear this stinking banjo <laughs> for my entire <laughs> life. You know, my, my, Erica... No, was, that they may find themselves on the psychiatrist. Yeah, they, they will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Erica said... I think she was about 12 when she said this. She said, Dad, you know what's funny? I said, what, hon? She goes, when I was little and you would be playing banjo, I just always, I thought you were always playing the same song. <laughs> and I said, well, honey, it kind of all does sound the same. <laughs> okay, on that, I want to, here's what I, where I'd like to end. Uh, a couple nights ago, I, I made a little joke to you. I was like, hey, I, I quoted a Steve Martin joke to you. Oh, right. And then you started telling me about how you ended up playing banjo with, him oh right. right like you ended up like tell me a tell me a steve martin story i don't well he i it was really interesting to watch him because he's you know he's fairly serious he's serious about comedy he really is oh, like you have to be he takes good. it he takes it totally seriously and um 
I was amazed at at you know the the way they do it. Like, and they they assess. You know, I. So you were I, working on the the. Steve Martin, Martin Short. Show, Steve Martin, Martin right? Short show. I was only part of you know the band for I think three shows. Okay. And Stuart was there. Stuart Duncan. Yeah. And Adam Steffi, Barry Bales, and you know it was a great and Jeff White. It was a great band. Super fun. Um, and for whatever reason, Steve likes having another banjo player rolling behind when mm -hmm. he's playing. Um, but I was amazed watching the show. And how um, they didn't deviate from basically their script, you know, mm -hmm. that much. They did a little here and there. They'd like throw in a little improv just for a second. But it was like it was a framework that they found worked. And uh, and occasionally they would talk about um, – I didn't – I wasn't privy to all their conversations, but occasionally I'd hear them going, yeah, that third bit, it didn't really work tonight. Can we change that to something else? Mm. You know, It's just like – and it's, it just struck me. It's just like a band going – our set's going really well except for that – you know, song number six. Song feels kind yeah, of funny. yeah, yeah. It's weird. Can we change that up? It's yeah. the same same kind of thing. You're just looking for the what the audience responds to, and that's that's what they're doing. They're it's How the crazy. same thing we do as musicians, except they're doing it with comedy. It's like getting the audience to you know respond somehow emotionally, whether with laughter or you know the way we do it with their yeah. heart and you know, feelings. You know, that's awesome. So what is what does next year hold for you? Oh, I think we have Allison touring coming up. Um, that's going to happen. I'm touring with Damien O'Kane over in the UK in July. Uh, oh, yeah. And then in, in January, I'm going over to flying to Dublin. And then there's a lady named Aoife Scott and her guitarist, Andy Meany. I'm going to play with them at Dublin Trad Fest. And then two days later, I'll play with Damien O'Kane at Dublin Trad Fest. So... Uh, and then fly to Celtic Connections. Have you ever heard of that? No. It's like it's uh, it's like a I don't know. It's like a month long or something uh, festival that goes wow. on in Glasgow in the winter. You know, in How January. Fun. So I'll go there and I'll play with um, Damien. You know, on a, I think it's a Friday night or something like that, and then a Saturday with Aoife. So I was playing four shows and then I come back home and then go on a cruise with the Soggy Bottom Boys. Oh, fun! Yeah, so which which is who? That's the uh, it's Stuart, Union Station without it's, it, Allison, right? It's Union. Well, it's not not really. It's uh, Barry Bales, Dan mm -hmm. Tominsky, and myself from mm -hmm. Union Station, and then from the Nashville Bluegrass Band, and those guys were all in the Oh Brother yeah soundtrack as well. Uh, Stuart Duncan, yeah, Pat Enright, and um, Mike Compton. Oh wow! On on mandolin, so it's super fun. Yeah, it's super fun. It's like we play stuff that we've known our whole lives. That's so, so we're going on a cruise there, and then I, I, th I don't think I don't know what's going to happen the second half of the year. You know, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> I don't, but you know, I may do Matthew some more. Six. I may do, yeah, exactly, and I may do some more teaching. I did the banjo um, instructional course. Oh, cool! On my and it's on my website, and it's you don't download it. You just watch the videos, and you get. A bunch of free stuff and oh, that's cool. You know, and uh, but pe people buy in and then they get the passwords and all that. Yeah, for it, uh, I may do one for guitar next year. Yeah. Hmm. Takes some time, but um, I did the banjo one live, so like uh, I taught every Tuesday every Tuesday night for a month. I would mm -hmm. teach for two hours, and I'd have a you know basically have a, a 
or I'd have a basic outline. And so now people can just watch what you have Now people can go back and watch it. And then I would do extra videos too where I would just film myself and go, and here's Manicon Sincero solo from the Bow Brother record. Mm -hmm. and, you know, tab it out and all that. So Yeah. But I'll probably do the same thing for guitar next year. Okay. And they can probably, I guess people can find that on your website and yeah. they can find your new record on your website. Yeah, it's called A Light So Fair, Peaceful Guitar Instrumentals. Beautiful. And uh, yeah, I'm getting good feedback from it from people, so... Because it's awesome. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, it produces peace, you know, in people. So I love that. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ron. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Oh, what a treat. <laughs>